0: Good morning, everyone. Um, Just a couple of quick words before we get to um, our message. I'm getting over a minor cold, so forgive me. I'm not going to shake hands or hug anyone. And I'm pretty sure it's a cold and not COVID, but if this is COVID, the pandemic is over. Uh, And then the other thing, I just wanted to thank everyone for your prayers for me when I was at the Cancer Treatment Centers of America in Phoenix, For a couple of days and I'll just say the word once. Um, I have prostate cancer and if you want to know what a prostate is and where it is and what it does, ask Dr. Google. And when you do, try not to think of me because it might. Um, But anyway, the good news of that visit is that um, they they did a head to toe bone scan to make sure that the cancer hadn't metastasized and, and it hasn't. So that's really good. When, when men catch prostate cancer early, it's, it's highly treatable. Um, but now I need wisdom from God to know what to do because there are different uh, treatment courses available and I don't know what I'm going to do. So pray. But, but thank you for your prayers. All right. Well, we are looking at Psalm 23 this morning. We're... Uh, in the middle of a series on um, Christ in the Psalms. And the reason we're doing that is because we're we're taking Jesus at his word. Remember in Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 44, Jesus said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the whole Old Testament foreshadows Jesus. Jesus, uh, his person and work, is the main character of the Old Testament, and um, he fulfills all of the types and shadows and prophecies from the Old Testament, and in particular, the book of Psalms. And that's why we've been looking at uh, several psalms that are recognized as messianic in nature. And today we're looking at Psalm 23. And the reason that this one is considered messianic is because of John 10 that Kevin read for us early, where, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And then Jesus says, Activity as our Lord and Savior is described in shepherding terms several times in the, in the New Testament. So um, behind the human author, David, writing about his own experiences and his own relationship with God, um, the Holy Spirit was intending Jesus. Jesus is the one whose composite picture is drawn out here. In Psalm 23. This is probably the most well-known Psalm. I mean, everyone knows Psalm 23. It's one of the most well-known passages in the whole Bible, in fact. And uh, James Montgomery Boyce, the uh, former pastor of, I think, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia who died a number of years ago, he, he wrote this about Psalm 23. Millions of people have memorized this psalm, even those who have learned few other portions. Ministers have used it to comfort people who are going through severe trials, suffering illness or dying. For some, the words of this psalm have been the last they have uttered in this life. And that's absolutely true. So... uh, we have the privilege of looking through Psalm 23 this morning and have God speak to us through this portion of His Word, and so let's let's do that. The theme really is given in the first line: "The Lord is my shepherd." And there's two main things that David um, mentions to us in Psalm 23, and that's the Lord's uh, the shepherd's provision. In verses one through three, and then the shepherd's protection in verses four through six. So let's let's look at it together. So no, number one is the Lord, the shepherd's provision, verses one through three. It begins a psalm of David, and, and indeed, it is. Um, that heading is actually a part of the inspired text, and David says, "The Lord is my Shepherd, the Lord. There is um, Yahweh, and you know that in your English translations because of the use of uh, small caps to spell out Lord. So every time you see that in the Old Testament, then you know that the um, the Hebrew word is what we try to pronounce as Yahweh. It's really impronounceable, but that. That is who is David's shepherd, the Lord, Yahweh, the self-existent, covenantal God of the Old Testament. And why did David ascribe or describe the Lord as his shepherd? Why did it occur to David to describe his relationship with God in this way? Well, it's because David himself was a shepherd, when he was younger, that was his job. In fact, he himself said, 1 Samuel seventeen thirty-four, 34, he, he said this to King Saul uh, on the occasion of uh, Goliath challenging the armies of Israel. David said, I work as a shepherd for my father. And so all of the imagery here in Psalm 23, David was intimately Familiar with. David was a shepherd and uh, his experience as a shepherd protecting, caring, and providing for his father's sheep was a very personal illustration for how the Lord worked in David's life, protecting, caring, and providing for him. It was a perfect way for David to understand what the Lord was up to in David's own life. And then, of course, um, let's remember that this is how the Lord Jesus Christ described himself. John chapter 10 that Kevin read earlier in verses 11 and 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is in physical embodiment what the Lord is by nature. Jesus exegetes the Father. He makes known the Father and he makes known uh, the role of the Father as our shepherd because Jesus is the good shepherd. And John chapter 10 isn't the only place where Jesus uh, is described in these terms. In Hebrews, Thirteen and verse 20, Christ is called the great shepherd of the sheep. And there's, there's no doubt that the writer of the book of Hebrews has Psalm 23 in mind. And also Peter calls Jesus the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5 and verse 4. So now notice how the Lord, our good shepherd, provides for his sheep. So back in Psalm 23 verse 1, "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want," David says. The Lord makes sure that his people don't lack any necessary needful thing. The the apostle Paul would write in Philippians 4 and verse 9, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. But that doesn't mean that the Lord gives his people all that they want. There's a big difference between what we need and what we subjectively, emotionally, sometimes covetously want. And God doesn't promise to give give us all that our uh, sinful, idolatrous, covetous nature wants. Some of what we want isn't good for us. It's not good for our sanctification. It's not good for our relationship with God. It's not good for our eternal life. But God absolutely provides us, with all that we need. Peter writes about this in 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so whatever we need in life, whatever we need for godliness, whatever we need to know God and to walk with God, to be in a relationship with God, God richly provides for us. In terms of those things, our actual needs, none of us is in want. And that's what David says, I shall not want. He goes on in verse 2. The Lord makes me lie down in green pastures. Remember, David shepherded sheep in the desert Excuse me. (coughs) David shepherded sheep in the desert where green pastures weren't easy to come by. By the way, you know, there are sheep who are pastured in Ridgecrest. Have you ever seen that? Up there near Rademacher Hills. I've seen them a number of times. But whatever kind of food... Those sheep find in the Rademacher Hills, they don't really find green pastures, maybe one week out of the year. But that's the reality of life in the desert, and David was familiar with that. Part of the shepherd's job was to know where the green pastures are at any given time and to lead his sheep there. So that's what David did for his sheep. That's what God did did for David, and that's what the Lord does for each one of us. God knows exactly where the green pastures are, where his people can find food that truly satisfies our deepest hunger, and there we can lay down. We can take our time. We can enjoy the provision and presence of our good shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. In John chapter 10, once again that Kevin read from in verse 9, Jesus said, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And there Jesus is tapping into this metaphor from David's pen. Notice the second half of verse 2, Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Sometimes there are streams in the desert, but they're they're seasonal. And if you come across, if you're thirsty and you come across a stream in the desert, you better... Get, while the getting's good, because that stream's not going to last indefinitely. But the still waters that David is referring to here are wells and springs. Not the runoff from some torrential storm, a flash flood, but subterranean waters that seem to always be there indefinitely. Indefinitely. Still waters, wells and springs. They're always available and they seem to gush from limitless, unseen reservoirs. Independent of the weather. That's what David has in mind. He leads me beside still waters. And thinking about what Jesus does for us, his people, his sheep, as he leads us as our good Shepherd, Jesus said in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Notice verse 3 in Psalm 23. He restores my soul. God is a restoring God. When you think about the metaphor of a shepherd and sheep, um, sheep, just like any other creature like us, when they're hungry, when they've gone long enough without food and water, they're, they're weak, sometimes feeling on the verge of death. And then when they're led and made to lie down in green pastures and, led beside still waters, and they're able to be satisfied with this lush grass and refreshing water. It's, it's as if there's a regeneration, a restoration of life in that creature. And that's what the Lord does for us as well. He restores us spiritually. Spiritually. He regenerates us. He gives us new life when there was once only death. He he, he gives us bread that truly satisfies and and, uh, wine that truly quenches our thirst, living water that truly quenches our thirst. When we used to be satisfied with uh, broken cisterns that leaked water, We used to be satisfied with spiritual junk food. So what does the Bible say about Jesus restoring our soul? Titus 3.5 Jesus, our Savior, has saved us not because of works in righteousness that we have done but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God grants spiritual life when there was only death. This is what the Lord does. This is what our good shepherd does for us. He restores our souls. And that's not all in terms of his provision. David says, he leads me in paths of righteousness. The end of verse 3. And this is a reminder that following the Lord... Following Jesus, the Good Shepherd, is a lifelong path. It's not just a temporary moment. And our Good Shepherd leads us on a lifelong journey of progressive sanctification in which God purifies us like gold and we grow into Christ-likeness. And sometimes that process is painful. Painful. It's uncomfortable, but God is committed to our sanctification because the best thing for us and any other image bearer of God is to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. That is our ultimate good, and that is what God is committed to, and that's what He does for us as He leads us in paths of righteousness. And notice that the goal is not our own boasting, not so that we can say we're holier than thou. It's for his name's sake. Following Christ as he leads us in paths of righteousness does not impress the world Uh, It's not going to win you very many uh, friends or influence very many people. It's not going to make you a celebrity. Probably won't get you elected to political office. But it will glorify God. When Jesus leads you and the Holy Spirit sanctifies you and you walk with the Lord and trust in him, no matter what life brings your way. When he exposes your remaining sin, which the Lord is still doing for me, and I'm going to be 59 in a couple of months, and you'd think I would have learned these things by now. But no, sanctification is a lifelong process, and he's constantly, perpetually exposing our sin, not to shame us, not to destroy us, but to make us holy, even as he is holy. To make us practically righteous, like Jesus, who is our the Lord, our righteousness. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So that's the shepherd's provision. And isn't that interesting when you think about um, how the Lord provides for us and what the world thinks about when it comes to provision the the world thinks that if God is going to provide for us then he needs to take care of all of my sensual desires all of my thirsts and bodily appetites but that's not that's not the plane in which God thinks that's not the plane in which he provides he provides for us, for his people, what we really need. And when it comes to what we really need, God is very, very faithful. He provides for us. All right. Secondly then, in verses four through six, we have the shepherd's protection. And verse four might be the most famous verse in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Let's look at a few things there. The shadow of death. We're not sure exactly what David had in mind in terms of his own personal shepherding experience when he wrote these words? Maybe David had in mind the ravines and wadis in certain parts of Israel where shepherds would lead their flocks through dark and narrow passageways. And in those ravines and wadis where the sun didn't reach you you never knew what predator or robber might be lurking around the corner. You never knew who or what you might meet up with. But in David's own walk with God, David was determined that I will not fear. I will fear no evil. That doesn't mean that nothing painful, Or uncomfortable would happen to him. It doesn't mean that he wouldn't even face death. After all, David did die about 3,000 years ago. But he will fear no evil in terms of ultimate evil, in terms of his separation from God, in terms of his forfeiture of um, the, the gift of salvation. He will fear no ultimate evil. He will fear nothing that God has designed for David's good. Romans 8:28 applied to David as well as it does to us, and we know that all things work together for good to those who are the called to those who are uh, to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. That applied to David as well as to us. Everything is either absolutely good from God's hand, every good and perfect gift, or even bad things work together for our good. But if you're a believer, you have nothing to fear. You can say with David, I will fear no evil. And why is that? Why Could David so confidently write, I will fear no evil? Because he also says, For you are with me. It's not that um, David is going to be spared of the tribulations and trials and sufferings that life in a fallen world includes. It's not that he's asking God to make his life easy and pain free. Because God's not promised that to anybody. Even God's own son, who knew no sin, was acquainted with suffering and suffered as no man had ever suffered before. So David doesn't count on the fact or on the wish that God is going to um, prevent him from suffering, but he counts on the fact that in his suffering. God will be with him. It's the presence of God. This was the main promise from God to the people of Israel under the Old Covenant. Exodus 3 and verse 12, I will be with you. God is always present with his people and that is the ultimate source of of our comfort. And God is not powerless. For David says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God is with us, and he's well-equipped. He's well-armed to take care of his sheep. The rod was basically a club that the shepherd could use to beat on a predator or a robber, beat them back. And a staff was a long crooked pole that the shepherd could use to grab a wayward sheep and bring that sheep back into safety and out of danger. This is what the faithful shepherd does. And you know what? This is what Jesus does for us. Keep your finger here in Psalm 23, and let's look in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Notice verses 1 and 2 in Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. That was the charge against Jesus from the Jewish religious leaders that then led to Jesus telling them the following parable. Remember, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So, verse 3, he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, And then Jesus gives the moral to the story in verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That is why it was okay for Jesus to go and sit down and spend time with tax collectors and sinners. Because Jesus is the good shepherd, and he is seeking his sheep. This is what happened to me when the Lord saved me, and this is what happened to you. You you may not have known it. You may have been unaware of it. But at some point in your life, and, and granted, praise God, there are people who, have, uh, who from childhood have known the Holy Scriptures like Timothy, which are able to make one wise for salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. Thank God. And that is totally legit, and it is a huge blessing. But there's also a lot of people who are uh, super stubborn like yours truly, and has to live life in this world, doing things our own way, trying to find happiness according to the, the ways prescribed by the world. And God comes after us. Jesus, the good shepherd, comes after us, and he rescues us. We, we feel like, well, I just came to the end of myself. And I realized that, you know, this really isn't a very intelligent way to live. I'd much rather live as a Christian and follow Jesus. I think Jesus is a much more capable Lord and King than me or the world. And those thoughts may have gone through your head, but that was the result of Jesus rescuing you. That was the result of the good shepherd seeking his sheep and bringing them back into the fold. This is what Jesus does for his people. Jesus, our good shepherd. And then Jesus' protection of his sheep extends not just from our conversion, our salvation, but it extends all the way to the end, even through the valley of the shadow of death. So Kevin read from John 10. Let's look there quick, quickly. John chapter 10, verse 14. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is how Jesus is able to lead us through the valley of the shadow of death because Jesus actually died for us. Jesus actually tasted death for us. He removed the curse of the law that was against us. He paid the penalty for our sins that it was due for us to pay and we can't pay. But Jesus did it by his death and his resurrection. And by the way, think about this for a moment. This is why the the death of Jesus is why we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Because death has been conquered by Jesus. uh, Death no longer has the last word. Death is no longer this snarling, grotesque, scary monster that it once was to us, this beast that we feared with all of our being. Death can't touch us. Ultimately, we certainly experience death. But Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. God. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. Back in Psalm 23 and verse 5, you guys are a little quiet today. Are you grossed out because of what I told you about my anatomy? I wouldn't blame you. I've learned more about my anatomy than (laughs) the last couple of weeks. I didn't know all that stuff. Psalm 23 and verse 5. And again, this is, whoops, the Lord's protection, sorry, the shepherd's protection. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So you'll notice that the theme of protection is still there because there are still enemies. David mentions his enemies. But he's not afraid of his enemies. His enemies pose no danger to him. The Lord prepares a table for David in the presence of David's enemies. This is how thorough... And successful, the Lord's protection of his sheep is. His people sit down at this banquet in the presence of their enemies. And this table, it's a, it's a banquet table. It's very familiar imagery in the Bible. Um, it symbolizes salvation. It symbolizes Um, enemies from God, those who were alienated from God, strangers and foreigners, being brought to God and sitting down at God's banqueting table, enjoying fellowship and one-on-one, face-to-face relationship with God. And Jesus refers to this this, uh, table in Matthew 8 and verse 11, where he said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 26 and verse 29, that's the passage where he uh, institutes the Lord's Supper. He said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's this table, in glory. And then the book of Revelation tells us about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verses 7 and 9. So when Jesus comes again, he's going to come in order to take his bride to himself. And his bride is the church, the community of believers, both Old and New Testament, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free from every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue. Jesus is coming again to take us, believers, his bride, to himself for a feast, a supper. And this is foreshadowed here in Psalm 23 and verse 4. David also says in Psalm 23 and verse 4, you anoint my head with oil. And that was an ancient custom where the guest of honor at a banquet, a feast, was uh, literally anointed with an olive oil solution on the forehead. God anoints—excuse me. God anoints believers with the Holy Spirit, and you can see that Second Corinthians one twenty-one and First John chapter two. Verses 20 and 27, we have an anointing. The Holy Spirit indwells us. God has anointed your head with oil above and beyond even what David could have pictured because of the person and power and ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. Then he says... My cup overflows. There there are so many good things from God that David enjoyed that he didn't have a cup big enough to contain them. It overflowed. Grace upon grace. We're, We're told in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, that God does Exceedingly, abundantly above all that we could ask or think. This is our God. And what's David's conclusion to the Lord's shepherding care over him? Verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Goodness and Mercy, all that can properly be called good. And God's mercy, his having pity on even his enemies, his goodness and his mercy, they follow us all the days of our lives, even those days that hurt, even those times when we don't know what the Lord is doing. We don't know how long this particular trial is going to last. But at least one thing we do know, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Not just the good days, not just the days when life doesn't hurt but all the days of my life. Even those days when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Goodness and mercy will follow us all the way into eternity. David also mentions in verse 6, the house of the Lord. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So I have a quiz question for you. What is the New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament house of the Lord? Seriously, you can answer. Blurt it out. I knew you were going to say that. It was a trick question. Pastors, one is, I want to say it's the church, so come to church or you can't enjoy Psalm 23. <laughs> but think about this. What's the history What was the house of the Lord in David's time? The tabernacle. What did Solomon build? The temple, and then that that was rebuilt. And that's the temple that Jesus was familiar with. What's the New Testament counterpart counterpart to the tabernacle, to the house of the Lord? The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus. Jesus. John one fourteen, In John chapter 2, Jesus said, destroy this temple and on the third day, I will raise it again. And then John says, Jesus said this referring to the temple of his body. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the temple in which the presence of God dwells. And if you think about David's language, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. We do dwell in Christ. We abide in Christ as the branch abides in the vine. (coughs) Excuse me. And Jesus abides in us. Jesus indwells us, it turns out, through the person of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is the ultimate dwelling place, the ultimate presence of God, and we have him. From the moment we put our trust in Jesus, we have him. More importantly, Jesus has us. And Jesus said, no one can snatch, snatch them from out of my hand. Commentator Steve Lawson concludes this uh, psalm with with a prayer. God, we declare our dependence on you for our spiritual and physical needs. You are the Lord and shepherd who has provided all that pertains to our life and godliness. For this, we bless your name. We know that when death's dark shadows cover us, We have nothing to fear because you are with us. Lord, thank you. The Lord is our shepherd. If you don't know this Lord as your Lord, what a great time to do it. Today is the day of salvation. Now the the door of opportunity is wide open. The the gate of salvation is, that leads to heaven is wide open. It happens to be exactly the dimensions of the gospel of Jesus. You can't come in any other way, but that is a vastly wide gate. And no one, no one, who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, casting themselves upon him, committing Their their souls, their lives to Him. No one will ever be turned away. Come to Jesus and know Him as your good shepherd today. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this amazing, picturesque, encouraging passage of Scripture But more than that, Lord, we thank you that you are our shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Thank you for all that you do for your sheep. And would you encourage our hearts and would you strengthen us in the inner man so that we would follow the Lord Jesus Christ as he makes us to lie down in green pastures and leads us beside still waters and even leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. Bless your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.